In today's Discovering Music, we'll be taking a look at a composer who, while I realize that some of you may not even have heard his name before this Holborough Festival, the Hungarian composer George Kurtag. Kurtag was born in 1926 in Transylvania, which was indeed then part of Hungary before it was ceded to Romania which is exactly the same sort of area that Kurtag's great contemporary and compatriot George Ligeti was born in, the much better known name today. But I think that Kurtag is every bit as remarkable a composer as Ligeti. He is, however, very, very different, as we'll be seeing today. In fact, he's quite different from almost any other composer I can think of. Well, just to start with, can you imagine anything like this? And that, believe it or not, is it. That is flowers, we are frail flowers, dot, dot, dot. Those three little dots at the end, very suggestive, leaving you, as it were, perched on the edge of something. What? Something frail, delicate, and mysterious. That's one of the pieces in a huge collection known as Yatakok, the Hungarian for games. Well, in a way, I think that does sound like someone is very gently playing with us. But there's something else about that too. Or maybe you disagree. I can imagine if you just came across that on its own, on a recital or on a record, you might conclude that that was just baffling or worse still, another piece of pretentious modern music disguising its poverty of invention with a bit of deft, arty posturing. Well, I don't think that's the case at all. And I'd like to share with you today what I found on discovering these pieces for myself. The idea of there being an awful lot concentrated into something very, very small, a meaning completely beyond the notes and what they appear to be on the page, is actually quite old established in music. I was listening the other day to Beethoven's Diabelli Variations, which is one of the monuments not only of piano virtuosity, but also of the variation technique in composition. It's a very complex, wide-ranging piece. And then suddenly, about two-thirds of the way through, you encounter something like Variation 20. One of those moments in late Beethoven where it seems again that so much is concentrated into a tiny few notes. It's not just the economy though that Beethoven uses there. Some of those chord progressions actually sound quite weird even today, don't they? They don't quite lead where you expect, so that you wonder actually if you're listening to a progression of chords at all, or just a collection of sounds like bell strokes. It almost seems to be sampling each one of those chords just for the sound in itself. And in fact, it's very close in spirit to one of the longer, I say longer in inverted commas, of these tiny Yatakok pieces. It's a piece called in memoriam Andras Mihaili, dedicated to the memory of Kurtag's teacher and mentor. Like the Beethoven, it's like a kind of impossibly slow chant. And also notice the way that Kurtag, like Beethoven, uses the idea of the way the piano tone decays. In other words, you strike the note, almost immediately you start to lose it. So that on one level it's aspiring to be a kind of chant, and on the other it can't be because each note doesn't sustain, the piano doesn't sing, and there's a kind of poignancy in that.
feels almost like a kind of profanation to talk after that. It's so haunting, it can create such an extraordinary effect in such a small space of time. Do you feel there is a sort of connection with the Beethoven? On one level, the Beethoven is a very different kind of harmonic language. It's another age. But in another way, the two really do seem to belong to the same kind of spirit. And that title, In Memoriam, Andras Mihaly, this in memoriam idea, the writing of pieces in memory of someone or something, is a very common theme in Kurtag. This elegiac theme is something we'll be returning to again and again in this program. Well, inevitably, Kurtag was hugely influenced by the great Hungarian 20th century master, Béla Bartók. Kurtag cites the works Music for Strings, Percussion and Celeste, and the Cantata Profana as particularly important influences on his own work. But another crucial discovery was Schoenberg's hugely influential pupil, Anton Webern. Again, Webern has this extraordinary ability to concentrate an enormous amount of feeling into tiny pieces, tiny thoughts, even single notes. As Schoenberg put it himself about von Webern's pieces, Webern can express a novel in a single gesture, a joy in a breath. The third of Webern's three little pieces for cello and piano, opus 11. Little, very much the word in terms of duration. In terms of quality, though, are these really little pieces at all? I recently was shown a copy of Webern's own copy of the Piano Variations, Opus 27, and I was amazed by what I saw there. In different coloured ink, Webern had written these fantastically detailed and specific expression markings. You get an A-flat, mezzo forte, just in the middle of the register of the piano, and he's probably written with the utmost despair. Again, there's this idea that you somehow have to concentrate intense resources into something tiny, which seems to have left such an impression on Kurtag. Here's another of his Yatokok that I think shows just how deeply he ingested that lesson. This is called Objet Trouvé, a beautifully appropriate title, the idea of the found object that was so important in Dadaism. Um, artists making things with pieces of jetsam they'd found floating on the edge of the Seine, or that kind of idea. Here, the found object is quite clearly a single F-sharp, as it does sound like something discovered, and once discovered, lingered over, just for a moment. Thanks, Richard. It's like finding a particularly beautiful stone on a beach, isn't it? You suddenly just want to pick it up and look at it. In fact, somebody told me a story, it's probably apocryphal, but I love it, of 
Webern being with Schoenberg's other great pupil, Alban Berg, the great romantic, the lover of the big gesture, on the side of a mountain, and Berg throwing his arms wide and looking at the view and saying, isn't it marvelous? And Webern apparently had his eyes on a little stone and said, yes, isn't it? <laughs> In fact, there's a remark of Kurtag's I read only the other day, which seems incredibly relevant to this. Kurtag said, I keep coming back to the realization that one note is almost enough. Well, certainly, and there are moments in music when you think that that can be true. I've read God knows how many works about musical analysis, and my wife is a psychotherapist and psychoanalyst who's doing work on the brain and music at the moment, and I'm fascinated by the whole question of perception. And yet there can be the moments when, like the other day when I put on the radio and there was the beginning of the quartet from Beethoven's Fidelio, and just those two opening chords, something goes off inside you, deep, somewhere. Something so simple, so basic, that you cannot explain why it touches you so much. This is an idea that seems to, to fascinate Kortag and to haunt him. He's also fascinated with paradox. And now we turn not so much to music for comparison, but to literature. One of the great favorites of Kortag is the Czech Jewish writer Franz Kafka. And one of the most haunting works for Kortag, and certainly for me, the things I love in Kafka best, are sometimes his tiny little works that are only half a page or two or three sentences. Um, indeed, one of Kortag's most marvelous works is a cycle called Kafka Fragments for Soprano and Violin. He wrote that in the mid-1980s. And Kafka himself is one of the great creators of paradoxical fragments. Now, here's, here's one of my own favorites. I'll just read to you very briefly. It's called On Crows. The crows maintain that it would be possible for a single crow to storm and capture the heavens. This may be true, but it says nothing against the heavens, for the heavens simply signify the impossibility of crows. I'll leave you to work that one out for a moment. <laughs> but here's a paradoxical little piece from Yattercock. It's a piece called Prelude and Waltz in C. there you are, not so much in C as just C. And that final FF plonk there on C, it's this kind of standard cliched way of, of finishing a tonal piece, kind of affirming the return to the tonic. But if we haven't gone away from C, what's the need to affirm it? And what's the meaning of that final gesture? Is it the end of anything at all? And does one note in any case give any sense of key at all, any more than that little F sharp in the objet trouvé? That wasn't a piece in F sharp, was it? It was just floating up and down on top of those white notes. Doesn't that final C, that bonk that we just heard there, doesn't that rather like the end of Kafka's story simply signify the impossibility of C as a tonic, just as Kafka's heavens by their very existence, if we accept that, signify the impossibility of crows? Well, these games quality, Yattercock, this is something that Kurtag and Kafka have very much in common. They both love humor, they both love the other sophisticated paradox or just childlike naughtiness. But children can also be disconcertingly serious, can't they? They can catch us out sometimes with the things they say. The simplicity that can reveal surprising depths of feeling. There's a little piece in Yattercock we'll be hearing this selection called Homage à Schubert, which invokes the simple kind of hymn-like texture that Schubert loves to dwell on, particularly in some of his later works, which can be so touching. And towards the end of this little piece, Kortag adds short notes which he marks quasi-pizzicato, as though they're plucked on a stringed instrument. 
it's almost like a kind of evocation of that texture that Schubert creates so often in his string chamber works, of floating ethereal chords with a pizzicato bass underneath, creating a kind of a sense of weightlessness. This is Kurtag's, as it were, response to that kind of mood in Schubert. Well, Schubert's quintet, of course, is a product of his extraordinarily fertile last year, and it's often understood by many to be a kind of farewell to life, whether Schubert himself saw it in such terms or not. He was, after all, only in his just approaching his 31st year. Thomas Mann said of the slow movement of the Schubert quintet that it was the kind of music you'd like to hear on your deathbed. So we're returning again to this idea of in memoriam, of farewells, saying farewell to things. Loss, mortality, transience. This is all the kind of theme that Kurtag explores again and again in his work, even in little distracting, supposed little fun pieces like Yatakok. There's a movement which is actually called Les Adieux, the farewells. And there's quite a specific reference here. There's references to Beethoven's Sonata Opus 81A in E-flat, which is known as Les Adieux, although Beethoven seems to want to know it by its German title, Das Lebewohl, singular. Beethoven begins the Adieu Sonata with three falling chords, a sort of horn call marked in Beethoven's original manuscript with the syllables of the German word for farewell, Lebewohl. And that's a kind of motto for the whole sonata, Les Beuvoles, farewell. Now let's hear Kurtag's Les Adieux. I'm sure you'll be aware as we listen to it that you can hear little echoes of that, distorted, as it were, in a glass darkly throughout this piece. So you can just hear whispers of the word farewell in there, reference to the Beethoven hovering in the background, but never quite explicit. It's fascinating because that Lebevold theme also haunts some other important farewell works. One of them is Mahler's Ninth Symphony, which is, in fact, haunted by the Beethoven Lebevold figure. And that same figure also haunts Ligeti's horn trio. It's, again, that sense of farewell of something in the background that's sensed still not quite on the foreground, still somewhere ghostly, as it were, slightly off stage. It's even there, this idea of the Lebovol theme, in that tiny fragment that we heard right at the beginning of this selection, which Kurtag says forms a kind of motto for the whole of Yatakok. Flowers, we are frail flowers.
Now, those last notes that are really widely spaced about the keyboard are E, D, and C. If we make them follow each other by step instead of spreading them out like that, this is how they sound. Three blind mice, or... Farewell. So let's now hear a selection, a little suite we've made ourselves from George Kortag's Yatakok, played for us today by Richard Casey.
Kortag's memorial tribute to his mentor, Andras Mihai, ending that selection from his Yatakuk games. The pianist there was Richard Casey. Richard, I'm fascinated listening to you playing that because the, um, the level of concentration that you seem to be putting into just such a tiny handful of notes, such, such minimal material, is that as much of an effort to create that effect as it sounds to me? Oh, very definitely, yes. It's a case of very great concentration. Far more, in fact, than, you know, when you're whizzing around on the piano and got lots and lots of notes to hide behind. Um, Kurtag is very keen on uh, subtleties of pedaling, so that's something I think about a lot. You probably noticed in the last, the last piece, you know, there's, it's, the pedal is neither kind of all the way down nor all the way up. It's, it's somewhere in between and constantly varying according to each chord. It's very interesting how... There's, one, there's one, such a lot for you to get right in what seems like such simple material. Yes, there? yes. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Richard. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. <laughs> well, it's time to turn now to something a little larger, which is a song cycle called Scenes from a Novel for soprano and three instruments, violin, double bass and cymbalom. And here to play them for us now, along with the soprano Maria Hussman, are the members of Sapfa. Now, before we go into detail about scenes from a novel, there are just a few words I'd like to exchange with our cymbalom player, Tim Williams, because it's not often I'm on the stage with a cymbalom. And here it is in front of us. As you can see in the church, it looks like someone started to make a piano and then realised they've strung it the wrong way and given up halfway through. <laughs> Tim, um, can you tell us a little bit about the cymbalom? First of all, how do you play it? Well, to play it, you use um, sticks. It's not... Um, hammers like a piano, but Kurtag asked for these soft sticks, which sound like this. He also asked for metal beaters, which in Hungary, the traditional way to make them, I understand, is with coat hangers. So that's exactly what these are, with some corks on the end. And it is particularly associated in many people's minds with folk music. Is that where its metier is? Yeah, absolutely. It's Hungary's national instrument, really. And it's, it's similar to our dulcimer, but on this instrument you also have the bass strings. It is a fascinating instrument, as we'll hear in the performance to come, and as in some of the instructs we're going to be looking at now. In fact, with the violin and the double bass, it creates an extraordinary effect, like one writer I think has called a demented gypsy band. I remember someone recently, a friend of mine and colleague, Gerald McBurney, played me a recording of a gypsy band improvising on learning of the death of Ceausescu. And you could tell what they felt about Ceausescu <laughs> from the performance. Uh, this was the cymbal on particularly, was it seemed to be the most perfect instrument for expressing rage that you could possibly imagine. But there's extraordinary range of colour and sound, indeed, that Kurtag gets from this instrument in combination with this, uh, this unlikely ensemble here, what he produces with it. I think, I think we ought to have a look a little closer at it before we hear the piece and just find out what it's about, if you can say what it's about in a few words. This is a piece, after all, called Scenes from a Novel. So if it's a novel, there ought by rights to be a story. Well, what the story might be is suggested in the second of the songs. It's called From Meeting to Parting, and that's basically it. From meeting to parting, from leave-taking to awaiting, that was my woman's lot. a pretty typical length for one of the movements of this song cycle. As you probably realise, some of you there listening, that the language that's sung is Russian. There's a poet, a Russian poet, who has a particular meaning for Kurtag, Rimadalos. 
Although even, even in translations, some of her poems are very, very touching, I find. And there's also a kind of dreamlike quality he brings to some of these settings. The sixth of the songs is actually called Sun, Dream. And it is a very atmospheric little nocturne. Again, very small, but it seems to say so much in a very small space. Every night, the same dream. I beg you to come near. You approach. I push you away. You can hear the sudden pushing away at the end, can't you, there? But there are also fragments of hints of other things as well in this music. Again, little half-remembered things or half-suggested things, whispers of familiar ideas. Just near the beginning, the symbolum, for instance, plays a hint of that all farewell motive from the Beethoven sonata. Da, 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 there it is. And almost immediately it's followed by another hint of the famous old plain song, the Dies Irae. You can just make out the shape of the chant itself behind those notes. This is the actual shape. That's a little shape you might notice from time to time cropping up in a kind of distant ghostly echo in scenes from a novel. So another connection with death, with loss, with mourning. The Diazire is part of the Requiem Mass, the Mass for the Dead. But there's another interesting remark I came across recently about Kurtag, which I'd just like to bring in here in connection with another of the songs. It's from the critic Paul Griffiths. He says, quite how Kurtag's music forces the words on us when its meanings are so often when its means are soft and so simple, it's hard to say. They could hardly be less and still be something. On the other hand, they could be more and nothing at all. I like what Paul Griffith says there about his forcing words on us. Sometimes Kurtag does exactly that. In the seventh movement of the cycle, Rondo, the title suggests something going round and round and round, there are recurring words in the poem. I said it cannot be. I said it will pass. I said, I said. And the Russian for I said is Gavarila. And Kurtag does indeed force that words on us by the simplest means possible, by repetition. That's almost until the singers run out of breath. hand for Maria, Maria Hussman. And here's another chance for Maria Hussman to shine in another kind of virtuosity. In the eighth of the song, it's called Nagoda, Naked, I cover my soul with a fig leaf and flee paradise. Well, the soprano is indeed naked here. She's alone, completely without instrumental clothing. 
And now here's another one of those songs with that kind of multiple possibilities of, of interpretation that's so often the case with these tiny little Kurtag pieces. Number five is called Shitaloshka, Counting Game. This time it's a homage to Mahler. There's no quote from Mahler, or even with any material associated with Mahler, instead of which there's a fragment of a Russian-sounding folk tune marked in the tempo of a Kamarinskaya. That's a particular kind of Russian folk dance, which is often associated with weddings. Now here may be an oblique but clever reference to Mahler, because in the famous third movement, the funeral march of Mahler's first symphony, which is based on the old round Frere Jacques, or in German, Bruder Martin, there's a sudden astonishing outburst of what sounds unmistakably like klezmer music, which again is Jewish wedding music. Now Mahler was writing at the time when he was hugely disappointed in the failure of a love affair with a soprano called Johanna Richter. And so this sarcastic, ironic invocation of wedding music in the Mahler symphony, again, may feed back into what Kurtag is trying to tell us here in this piece, Counting Game, which seems so simple on the face of it, an invocation of union, of a blessed union, which is being sarcastically sent up. that at your wedding, would you? <laughs> All my chances slipped away, and I was left here with this love so ragged and tattered. And there the music seems to say it all for us, doesn't it? There's another homage to another more recent master of irony and blistering sarcasm, the Russian Alfred Schnitka, in the ninth of these songs. It's called Hurdy Gurdy Waltz. And the poem runs, even in the rush hour, the tramcar of my soul cheerfully rolls along. Well, there you can already detect more than a hint of irony, can't you? Cheerful, because the idea of a tramcar surely is of something that's stuck in its rails. It can't move out of that set path that it has to go in. In other words, the cheerfulness is like a set smile, something you put on to get yourself through. Just as a hurdy-gurdy has to play the tune it's programmed to play. There's a kind of nightmarish determinism about it. Now, at one point in this little song, the violin plays what could almost be a cheerful little waltz tune. Almost. <laughs> but when you put that against this mechanically repetitive double bass part... It hasn't really got a chance. That sounds... that's absolutely stuck in its ways, that bass part, like the tram car stuck in the rails. It's a marvellous image. And with the, on top of that, the wonderful, exaggerated, grotesque leaps of the soprano line, this really has to be caricature. It couldn't possibly be anything else.
There's one song I should mention before we hear the complete cycle of scenes from a novel. It's the summation, in a way, it's the drawing all the fragments of the novel together and makes a kind of epilogue, which is what Kurtag subtitles it. And it's a repetition of those words that we heard in number two. From meeting to parting, from leave-taking to awaiting, that was my woman's lot. But this time it's set differently. The accompaniment and most of the vocal line are basically just falling chromatic scales. That's all they are. And it's so short again, and yet it seems to say so much, as much as a whole movement of a Mahler symphony. It really is extraordinary, expressive, so eloquent, again, despite its simplicity. But I won't sample that. I'll let you hear it in context as the final number from George Kurtak's Scene from a Novel. So here it is, performed for us today by the soprano Maria Hussman with the members of Sapfa, Tim Williams, Cymbalum, Dave Routledge, Violin, and Jeff Box, Double Bass. Extraordinary. George Kortak's Scenes from a Novel, performed for us by Sapfa and the amazing Maria Husman. <laughs> and many thanks also for the composer for being here today. To receive our applause. <laughs> so far, we've heard George Kortak in the kind of persona that I think many people would recognize him for today that creation of extraordinary atmospheres with such economy, fragmentation, that sense of exquisite concentration and of intense expression, often forced into tiny, tiny musical spaces. But in 1994, Kurtag sprang a huge surprise with a piece entitled Stele, which is the ancient Greek term for memorial stone or column. Often they had drawings on them of the departed, as it were, walking off into the distance, waving goodbye to the bereaved as they left. It was a very distinctive feature of this kind of memorial stone. Well, the subject wasn't a surprise, if you know Kurtag's work, but this is a work for orchestra, and this was in fact the first time he'd used orchestra since his viola concerto that he'd written when he was a student, and apparently he wasn't entirely happy with that either. But still, it wasn't just for orchestra, it was for an absolutely enormous orchestra. The scoring includes 22 woodwind, 17 brass, a vast array of keyboard instruments and harps, a cymbalom, a huge percussion, and a full string section, which Kurtag quite distinctly specifies has to be very large indeed to balance out the rest of the orchestra. It's reminiscent in size, this band, of Mahler's famous Sixth Symphony. A cartoon appeared at the time when Mahler's Sixth first appeared, of Mahler standing in a warehouse full of bizarre instruments going, my God, I forgot the car horn. <laughs> because it was felt that he'd crammed just about everything possible into this work. But in fact, even though Steely is so short, it's well under 13 minutes, you could say that in a way, it's possibly the nearest thing to a Mahler symphony produced in our time. There is a sense of journey, of exploration going on in this piece, even in this small scale. 
And there's also a clear sense of something tragic in the background emotionally, just as in Mahler 6. It's full of fabulous orchestral textures. But there's also a revival here of an interesting old technique. For instance, Handel used a lot, which is going back to old pieces and reworking over them and creating something new. In fact, although that sounds quite an anti-romantic way of working, where in Romanticism the stress is very much on originality, Mahler did a lot of that sort of thing too. If you know the first symphony and then get to know the song cycle, Lieder eines fahrenden Gesellen, you can see how Mahler took whole chunks of the song cycle and reworked them into something bigger and more ambitious and created an entirely new kind of musical narrative out of them. Well, let's just give you two examples of pieces that we've already heard, which Kurtag works over again in Stile. Do you remember that next to the last song in Scenes from a Novel, number 14, it's called True Story. This is just the beginning of it. Well, an expanded, or you might say aggrandized version of that becomes the scherzo-like second movement of Steely. And do you remember our selection from Jatakok ended with that very slow procession of chords called In Memoriam Andrash Mihal. These chords were the first chords we heard in that piece. Those chords are the basis, there's almost nothing else, in the last movement of the Stele, which is a kind of incredibly slow and almost agonizingly slow funeral march. And the rhythm is added, da-da-da-da-dum, like that, on each one of those chords, but you'll clearly recognize it's the same chord at work there. And one of the most remarkable things for me about Steely is a composer who's so well known for his manipulation of fragments can also be so good at creating a feeling of that kind of grand narrative that Mahler does so stupendously in his symphonies. So I'm wondering, listening to Steely, is this the nearest thing we have to a great modern symphony in the Mahler tradition? Or maybe it's a case of, to take that theme that we've come across several times in Kurtek's works today, maybe it's a case of in memoriam the symphony. <laughs> 